Michelle Delcourt is a serial entrepreneur and one of the greatest minds in fitness. In this episode, he shares some of the key learnings he's gleaned along the way through his business career. In my, in my view, culture cannot be created. It must self-organize and emerge from those that are participating within the community. One attribute was consistent amongst all successful people, and that was grit. And boy, can I attest to that, <laughs> right? It's not social standing, it's not education. I mean, all those things can have influence, but the common denominator was grit. I'm Fraser Quelch, and this is a TRX Procast, where we chat with some of the most iconic leaders in fitness to get the inside track on what it takes to thrive and succeed in the ever-changing landscape of business, training, and life. Actually, you know, it's funny that I ended up in this industry at all, because as a kid growing up in grade school, I was two things. I was, I was a chubby kid, and I was super shy and non-athletic, right? My brother stole all the athletic genes. Thanks a lot, Jay. Um, but... You know, so growing up, as you can well imagine, I'm in grade school and, you know, a teacher would ask me a question and I would, I would be absolutely frozen with fear, right? Just shy, shy, like uncomfortably shy and, uh, and non-athletic, right? So having me kind of evolve, I guess, to where, where I am now is kind of strange. If you were to ask my contemporaries back then, uh, where would Michelle end up? But for me, it was really a, a situation where my brother was heavily into sports and, and he was a good athlete. So he kind of pushed me into the, just the training realm. And although I wasn't a particularly great mover or skilled or had this certain look that the aesthetic look that fitness kind of covets, I'll say, uh, what I did have is an immense passion towards just learning the body, right. And how it worked. And so that, that began my foray into the university of Alberta in my undergrad and graduate studies, uh, in effectively what they call physical education, but it's exercise science. And so, uh, going through that journey, that was just—I was just very passionate about it, and you know, wanting to learn more and more and more. And so, my my foray into, I guess, this wavelength and, and the journey till now is really more on the academic side than it was on the athletic prowess side. That a lot of people have as they want to help people, right? I used to be an athlete, and then I want to help others. That seems to be a lot of the narrative that that goes on, but uh, that wasn't me. And so, you know, I think. I think for me, that was really a strong push was I just wanted to learn and stay curious and ask questions and scrutinize and dig into the information. And I think that's when you and I kind of began to collide in terms of, you know, our, uh, you know, our first meeting was really on, uh, on that level. You guys were doing some stuff with kids and, you know, we started to communicate, you know, on not just the application side, but certainly the theory side as well. And so that's always I think that's always filtered my perspective on everything really. Uh, and so that's kind of how I got into the, the industry was more on the kind of the teaching side and the academic side. So you talk about starting off as the, you know, chubby fat kid, he was super shy. Right. And then to getting really, I mean, Jay pulling you into kicking and screaming to some extent, probably into the world that the realm of athletics and, and then into training, but it's not like those two aren't, those aren't like all of a sudden you become the other right? Like there was, there's a line. So it, like, how did you transition over? Like, was it just Jay dragged you in, into your workouts? And, yeah, and then because it's, you're a great mover now, right? So uh, there must've yeah. been, there must've been some transition. It was. And, and, you know, I appreciate the kind words, but I would say that, you know, relative to a lot of folks, like 
I'm not a fantastic mover, but um, you know what's kind of cool is at my age right now, I'm better than I was at 27, right? So that's kind of cool to kind of, when you start so low, you can actually age and get better, which I recommend. <laughs> for, <laughs> don't start high and just this kind of, you know, this just teardrop drop at, over time. That's, that's terrible. You're saying um, peaking at 20 is overrated. That's what you're saying. Yeah. Just a long downhill from there. Um, no, but I think what it was is just through working out. So he was, uh, Jay, my brother, was, was uh, in, in uh, football competitively uh, in his high school and college career. So he, yeah, we, he just kind of, you know, I follow his, I follow his kind of his lead, so to speak. And, and it right. was really working out. It was, and it, at the time it was really, you know, weights and it was really linear weights and it was everything you would imagine, you know, a number of like 20 years ago, 20 plus years ago. And, um, and because of that, that, you know, that was my start. And so that wasn't good enough for me though, because as I learned about training, uh, physical conditioning, I wanted to understand to a greater degree how the body moved, uh, what the mechanisms were. And, you know, I remember in university, I remember taking the, the, the toughest classes, you know, an advanced anatomy class, advanced conditioning methodology, advanced exercise physiology, uh, which weren't electives that you needed to take. Uh, but those were the ones that I wanted to take. And, and because of that, that just, it, it quenched my thirst for understanding just human form. And that could have transitioned into medicine or anything of like that. But to me, what appealed was what was appealing to me was this idea of helping individuals delay or offset malady, right? The idea, and that, that was an inspiring thing for me as well. Like instead of treating uh, a disease state, can we actually go in and think about how to delay that uh, through the many mechanisms and, and, you know, many interactions that we might have with an individual. And so that still shapes me to this day in terms of the health coaching stuff that we're doing, everything else. So, right. you know, for me, the journey it still continues and that transition that you're talking about is still continuing. Uh, and we'll talk about that a little later on, but that, that evolution in me is still continuing. And, but I think that there was, you know, just a strong influence. And then when I, once I got into that culture, I remember being in, in downtown Edmonton at a place called the center club and met people like Paul Plackus and Jeff Woods and Simon Bennett. And these individuals, I mean, at the time, personal training was just kind of starting in the, in the mainstream, you know, that's so old. Mm -hmm. uh, but these individuals were in it and they were super passionate and they had good personalities and, and they're still in the industry and still making an impact in the industry. And so I was pretty fortunate to be around these, these individuals and there was a community and culture that emerged because of that. And then once you're in that, it becomes part of your DNA. That, that's your identity at that point, because right. you identify with that. It's, 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 it, it, it corresponds to your highest value sets. You begin to look at the world through those lenses. And, you know, that was really at that point, you know, there was no other track for Michelle other than that. Well, that community and culture is so important. And at that time, that was a really, because I remember that group of people that, that you were with. That was about the time that you and I first met. And it was, it was a very, it actually reminded me of kind of my own little group that we had, in, you know, a few, a few hours down the road, of really tightly knit, all about the same age, the same part, same kind of time in life, charging forward with that, as you said, thirst for knowledge and and trying to get better and, 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 and improve and increase understanding. And so, yeah, I like that, that, that culture and community 
is is to some extent infectious as i think you just yeah, it affects for a lifetime it is and the interesting thing about culture is a lot of organizations in business will say you know we want to create culture and my view is that just like biology biology is emergent meaning the conditions have to be right and then biology emerges or self organizes itself within an environment so think about, you know, planting seeds in the ground. If the, if the soil's not in the right condition, you know, it won't emerge in the right way. And I truly believe that culture is the same way. I don't know that I, in fact, in my, in my view, culture cannot be created. It must self-organize and emerge from those that are participating within the community. So if we look at the strongest community, even in fitness, you know, you might look at, you know, um, adventure races or you might look at you know different workout boxes that are out there and there there are these cultures that uh are have emerged that are savagely loyal uh to to what they've created and and in any one of those cases it was never from the top it was never hierarchical which is a, a human construct right it was never top down it was never we're going to set a, a culture and then you know we're going to tell everybody else to uh, you know kind of adhere to that culture this is what our culture is yeah, it doesn't exactly. work like that no, it yeah. doesn't and and i think as a leader what i always look at is can i set the conditions up right and then get out of the way as the culture creates itself and all i do is fan the flames of okay cool <laughs> this is and keep creating the conditions for that culture to emerge right and that's the beauty about uh, that's a beauty about biology and that's a beauty about, you know, I think organizational biology in the sense that culture is emergent, right? And, and it is the community that really um, drives it. You know, a good friend of ours, Darren Jacobson at Zumba. I mean, that, that culture is, is pretty amazing. And when you go to other events, it's pretty awe-inspiring. And what's, what they've done well as a business, I believe, is they've set the conditions right. And then they've allowed their community to set the culture. And I just got out of the way. And they got out of the way. And, and I think that's one example of many of individuals or organizations rather that have done this exceedingly well. And, you know, I don't know that we can sit in a boardroom, you and I, and say, okay, we're going to create culture today. <laughs> well, and so that's, that's an interesting, that's, that's in and of itself is an interesting line of discussion. I know that I've marveled at around TRX, we, we do these events and we'll ha we have people turn up who have literally tattooed, make your body, your machine on their body permanently. Great tagline, by the way. And, and uh, well, you know, that you owe that one to Randy and came up with that at the very, very beginning. You can take credit for it. <laughs> you might listen, I don't know. But, um, but with, I mean, but creating culture is an important thing for organizations, big and small to attempt to do. So it's interesting, like if, if you're thinking about, hey, here's what we want our culture to be, let's, let, let's tell everybody else what it is, that's not possible, but setting the conditions, you know, you can influence your culture by 100%. laying the kind of soil, right? So if this is what you believe in, and, and the idea of culturing being based, maybe you can expand a bit on that, because I think if you break it down, culture is really based on beliefs and values. And so if you can infuse your beliefs and values into the construct that you're working in, then the people who believe and value the same thing um, that, that you do very, may very well create kind of the culture that you're envisioning. Can you sort of expand on that idea? Well, you, you said, I mean, I don't know if I could say it any better phrase. I mean, you nailed it. So I think that in that sense, from the business perspective, using this soil as the analogy, 
right? It's not as if you get out of the way in whatever direction it goes and whatever direction the wind <laughs> Get a garden full of weeds. Yeah, uh, but setting the conditions is, is what people follow. So, you know, if, if our value set and what we stand for, uh, some people galvanize around a common enemy, which is a way to galvanize a community, right? So whatever that is, um, in terms of building a mass movement, it is that that's the fertilizer, that's the soil, that's the, you know, the microbiome, whatever you want to say in that analogy of the soil, that's what the company can do is to say, this is what we stand for. This is our value set. Uh, this is what we, you know, uh, subscribe to as being important. This is what we stand for. All of those things a company can do, right? And they can, you know, kind of set that up in a very premeditated way. And once they do, that's the soil and the fertilizer and the microbiome. And then that, I would say, is the conditions where the culture emerges, right? And the culture emerges consistent with that because we've been explicit on what we stand for and here's what we represent. So it, it as long as you actually do it as a company, as long as you actually do what it's easy to write something down, post it and like paint it on a wall, but to actually behave a certain way is, um, yeah, because otherwise people see through that stuff. And that becomes disingenuous super quick, right? So the consistency and the other part of the conditions is, can I see action and is that consistent with what you've, what you stood for? And I think those are, uh, that's another aspect of, of the conditions where people can really lean in because it, it seems very authentic. And, you know, that value set is what they, they being the organization live and breathe every day. And so it begins to attract those individuals that bolster the culture. Right. And that's how it emerges. Right. So you are indeed correct. Uh, you know, I think that that consistency, I mean, everybody, employees, consumers, they can see right through a, 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 a statement for statement's sake, right. Or a goodwill statement or a value or a mission statement, just because it sounds good. It's, there's a big difference between that and then living those set of ideals. Absolutely. So we're talking about culture and, and, and creating something. Let's talk a little bit about Viper because, um, you know, again, when, when soon after we met was kind of when you came up with the idea for Viper and then started to, started to drive it along. Can you tell me a little bit about the, the initial inspiration for it and kind of how it started to take shape? Yeah. Well, I think that, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. So, you know, my advice for any people out there that want to create something is, and I think this is part of the genuineness of things which is start from a series of questions and needs and then go from there. And I think Randy has a similar thought process to how, you know, the, the TRX was, was developed. Uh, for us, it was really Simon Bennett, who was uh, at the time a strength and conditioning coach for the NHL and has since moved on to the director of performance and now, you know, does uh, more kind of overarching performance things for the NHL and, and beyond. But at the time, we were looking at this idea of why farm kids were so strong in hockey. And so, you know, as, as those that are familiar with ice hockey, a lot of times it's a combative sport. There's a lot of battling situations in hockey in front of the net in the corners, battling for pucks. And, um, and a lot of, you know, kind of collision-based, um, you know, environments where, you know, there's, there's combat. And in those instances of, of, of battle for position of play and, and puck presence and everything else, it seemed cliche to say, but it was true that farm kids were typically stronger than the city kids as it relates to strength on the puck. And so we were looking at what they did and what we found is that they were interacting with load, but albeit a lot of submaximal load, 
and they had a lot of variability in their movement, right? And so a lot of times one repetition looked nothing like the previous repetition all day long. And so somehow- So, so hold on a second, back up and talk to me about that in, because in, in, I know you've got something in your mind of exactly what are the farm kids doing? You're talking about variability and load and it was light load. What are the farm kids actually doing that's different? Yeah, well, they're, they're basically, you know, doing what we, we would call loaded movement training, right? So this idea of I'm going to take a bale of hay and I'm going to lift not it once, but I'm going to lift a series of bales of hay and I'm going to release them at different endpoints uh, or I'm going right. to dig a trench into the ground. And so if you and I were filming those farm kids and we saw them do chores, very rarely would it be a one RM max, right? It, it, I mean, right. sometimes, but very rarely. Most of the time with the, what influenced their mechanical remodeling was kind of these different uncommon odd positions of load typically asymmetrical very rarely what is was it symmetrical and most of the time it was off the midline so i would go in and i would lift and then i would shift that mass somewhere off my midline and that right. would stretch strain on my tissue a skin fascia muscle bone uh, and that would be a tension force, not a compressive force like we do. We tend to do in the gym, which is kind of this axial load. Um, and that somehow, you know, through that exposure, that dose response over time, these kids fortified themselves in very strong ways. And, you know, it's almost cliche to say, but if I said, hey, you know, a room full of people, if you had a farm kid wrestle a city kid or a gym kid and you were a betting person, where's your money? And nine or 10 times out of 10 times, the answer is the farm kid. Okay, that's anecdotal, but what's going on with that? And, and what I should also make mention is if you took the farm kid and you brought him in to the gym, advantage gym kid, right? Because that's the exposure to the imposed demands that they have. So I'm not saying that farm is better than gym. What I'm saying is different environment. And so if we apply that different environment to different tasks, i.e. of life, of sport, Probably the best answer is a little bit of both of gym wisdom and farm wisdom is something that we need to consider. And in the past, it was just a lot of gym wisdom that kind of won the day in terms of how we train these individuals. And what we tried to do with Viper is, can we augment the idea of farm kid? So going back to the invention of Viper and, and then Viper Pro was really around, okay, there's these gym kids. What are they doing? Well, they're lifting and shifting and interacting with mass in, in strange and, and uncommon ways, which we would consider odd position strength. And uh, we looked at that and we said, all right, that's kind of cool. I wonder if we can do something like that in the gym. So imagine having that thought in your head for a bunch of months and you're looking at different things through that lens of questioning, right? I wonder if we can do more farm type stuff in the gym. So one day I'm in uh, Simon Bennett's uh, studio gym years ago in Edmonton and we had, you know, there was gym flooring, you know, that rubber mat gym flooring, it's in a four foot by four foot square, but it was rolled up like a carpet and then bound in the middle with a tether and then put on end as if you would put a carpet on end. And we were luckily enough for us, we were too lazy to put it down on the ground where the, 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 the matting needed to be put in place. So it stayed there for a couple months. So invariably what you might expect is we flopped it on the ground and then we would start to flip it. Right. And this, it actually weighed about a hundred pounds. So we'd flip it as if you would flip a car tire. Right. And it wasn't particularly heavy in terms of flipping, but it was heavy enough. So of course, when you do that in a sagittal plane, right, flipping it forward, then you think, okay, well maybe I can do that flipping sideways and I'll do it in the frontal plane. So we would do that back and forth and we'd have fun with that. And then 
we, Simon and I looked at that and we thought, well, if we put handles in this, we could actually pick it up. And because it's rubber, you can kind of let it go and throw it and you can interact with it differently. You can load it onto the body and it would be more accommodating to the body. And so I, I wrote it out on, you know, on a piece of paper and, you know, okay, we could put some handles here and here. And then Simon looked at me and he said, well, if you put handles in it, you could do like a lunging series and a squatting series. And that might not mean anything to anybody out there. But for me, sometimes when you hear certain things and it's just an instant flash of clarity, for me, it was an instant flash of clarity in the sense that I'm thinking, that's it. Like I, I see the design in my brain and I see how we could actually utilize this in a way that can be uh, respectful perhaps to what they might do in the gym, i.e. a mass that has no moving parts that can be gripped in different ways and can be moved around the body as we per perhaps move the, our bodies around concurrent with that so that we can start to emulate what's happening on the farm. And so when I came back to, we were at actually at the Canfit Pro convention in Toronto and we were at the uh, Le Germain Hotel eating breakfast when he said that. I never forget that. And, and so when we came back, I asked my father if he knows any rubber manufacturers. He said, yeah, go see Ken Perrin from Rubber World. And he made these things out of a mandrel. He just wrapped rubber around. He made these tubes. And uh, they were particularly costly. And, and we cut little holes in them. And that was it. I mean, that was the prototypes. And then, you know, we gave it to a lot of NHL hockey players back in the time. And they gave us the confidence to actually bring it to market. Because they, they said, you know, to Simon and, and me, they said, we've never felt so strong as a body. Because everybody still thought body part at those times. I remember going to right. New York to launch Viper and all the magazines were there, right? And they're saying, okay, our readers want to know what body parts these were. And I think, well, they, it works. All body. of them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they're like, okay, so, but what parts of the body? Because you could tell that they're, they're thinking our readers are not going to like the answer of it works all of it, right? They want to yeah. know, does it work the arms and the butt? And, and every exercise we did, my answer was always the same, which was, yeah, it works everything. And they're like, yeah, but how about arms? Yeah. How about yep. trunk? Yep. How yep, about they're in there? <laughs> yeah. So what flowed from that is, you know, hey, today's body day, right? It's not body part. It's body day. Work, train your body to be a stronger body. And so that, that was kind of new. And it, it kind of, you know, for those that were in the know, they, it kind of gained traction. I think it's much more accommodating to people nowadays mm -hmm. um, because even athletics or older, like when you throw a ball, uh, football, that is a body uh, endeavor. It's not a shoulder or arm endeavor, I including the big toe. Like if I plant my big mm -hmm. toe on my right side and I drive into the ground and my right arm summates the force of, of the chain reaction, that's a big toe thing too. And so big toe has a huge influence on my throwing mechanics and my force. And so it makes more sense now for individuals in the general market, even the fitness enthusiasts out there, like, okay, I'll train my body to be a stronger body. And uh, so that, that, well, that, was, that was the early iterations of, of Viper. And then we launched it to market and then we redesigned it a couple of years ago. And but hold on a second. We got to back up. Cause, so there you and Simon are and you got, you got yourself a rolled up hunk of rubber with some handles in it. And you got your NHL players and they're, they're giving you lots of confidence. Yep. And then you, your dad tells you to go and get someone to, to, to wind it up for you so that you can, you can pay $500 per hunk of rubber. To, we made a, it's actually in the garage right now. We made a 60 pounder. I think it cost us like 800 bucks for, for just one. Like that was raw material and that was it, right? It's $125 a pound. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, so you've got this thing and a bit of confidence. You're like, okay. But at this stage, none of you guys 
brought a product to market before. Never. You didn't have, no idea. Simon had been running his personal training studio. You're not, you're not business people yet. I mean, you've got acumen for sure and you're an intelligent dude. So tell me if you can, and this is, I mean, you and I could talk for like a whole day on just your Viper journey alone and all the ins and outs of it. But like, what are the, what are the major pitfalls or those like learnings that you were like, okay, if I were to go do this again, yeah, because you don't know what you don't know. No, can, made a can lot you walk of, me through a little bit of that? Yeah, we made a lot of mistakes along the way. Uh, some more costly than, than others, but you know, all part of the learning experience. So I would say that, well, there's a couple of things. Uh, broadly, if, if you have a good idea and you believe it's a good idea, um, make, I would say first thing, make sure you're not in your own echo chamber. Meaning, you know, a lot of times we don't see perspective because it, we're the true believer, right? We believe this thing is unbelievable and it's the best thing since sliced bread. Um, but what, what I think the proof was for us was that when we started to, there was actually four people. There was myself, Simon, a, Paul, a guy named Paul Graham, and then my brother. Every Saturday when we made the first, you know, when Ken Perrin made a few of these for us, every Saturday we'd meet and we'd play a, a game of Rochambeau. Now, what many of you know as Rochambeau is rock, paper, scissors, but by pure definition, Rochambeau means you're trying to outdo me and I'm trying to outdo you. And right. it just shows up in rock, paper, scissors and other things. But Rochambeau is really that. So we, we played a game of Rochambeau, which is, I'm going to show you a move. And then you're going to- I used to call it Trader Anon. Yeah. And you're going to try to outdo that move. Now, one thing I would right. say is- contraindications were out the window and we knew that we, we actually knew it on purpose, right? We said, let's not worry about that just yet, right? Let's just worry about, can we do stuff with this? And then we'll rein it in. And when I say rein it in, we had to rein it in. I remember we had an 18 foot tether around my brother's head and he was dragging one of the, the vipers with Paul standing on it. Like, and there's nothing about that, that physiologically makes sense right? It's, it's hard on the neck and everything else. But what we did through that process of just pure discovery was we understood the playing field, right? We just said, let, let's remove any type of risk of, of injury. Let's remove all that because it's four people we knew, right? And let's just discover what we can do with this. And then we tighten that up and we get more responsible with our approach. So that's the first thing we did. And within, I would say within a month and a half, we had like 2000 drills, which were way too many, but it gave us confidence enough to now say, okay, how do we rein this in? And so we reined it in and we gave it to the other trainers that were in the studio with their clients. And here's how I knew I was out of my own echo chamber. When I was not there and I came back into the studio, you know, in certain times of the day, in many cases, I remember at that time, we probably had 12 of them produced by that point. Some of them we had to wait because all 12 of them were being used at once by the trainers on the floor. At that point, you know you're out, you're out of your own echo chamber. When you're not there advocating for it, is it still being used once people understand how to use it? I will submit that, you know, like any other tool. Lots of people curling with it. Viper can sit in a corner and collect dust. It absolutely can. If I'm being truthful to that, it can. Because it's like I go up to it and I grab this thing and I want to attach a known to an unknown, which is a tool. So if I grab it in this position right here. Unknown is a bicep curl. Unknown is a shoulder press. So I do those things and I put it down and I'm like, well, that's ridiculous. I can do that with a barbell. Exactly. Right. And in fact, the barbell is a better tool for those particular drills. So right. then in the person's mind, they're thinking, well, this is redundant or this doesn't make a lot of sense because there's other tools that do it better. And they would be right in that assertion. 
It's only when we start to have a dialogue about how we're using this for starting strength or what we call dead strength now, uh, for odd position strength, for strength endurance, for pre-position loading of, of dead starts, right? Anything of that nature, then it's like, oh, okay, I, I understand this idea of loaded movement now and why that might be important for me. So, you know, obviously there's a, a sense of education and TRX knows it better than anybody because you've done it better than, you know, most. Um, and, and so there is a, a period of discovery where it's about exposing what we do to the industry. But in that idea of 12 trainers using it at once and waiting for them, I thought, okay, great. And then what pushed us even further along was, you know, these advocates, these NHL players saying, you got to take this to market, right? Because I feel bigger, stronger, faster because I'm training my body as a body. And I remember Sean, Sean Horkoff being a huge advocate for us and saying, guys, you got to take this to market. So then go, this goes back to your question. A bunch of people that have never done this before are faced with, all right, maybe there's something to this, right? There's a belief there for sure. What do we do? Right. So the first thing we did was we tried to lean on people that knew better. So we actually called the Alberta Business Council and we said, what do we do? All right, we don't know what to right. do. What do we do? And that was a government, for those that don't know, um, it's a provincial in Canada, provincial agency that will actually help small businesses, really. Uh, and so we, we called them up and it's a government organization. They said, well, first thing is, is try to get a patent and here's the patent process. So it is like seven steps that you've got to do to get a patent secured. All right, well, let's do that. Patent uh, portfolio building is all about first in line. So even if you don't have the patent issued yet, as long as you submit it, you're first in line. That kind of, there's one layer of protection there. Mm -hmm. We did that as a first measure, thankfully. And, uh, you know, it didn't cost a lot. I mean, there was cost involved. I'm, I'm not going to, you know, kind of uh, gloss over that. But it wasn't prohibitive in terms of cost. And so once we had that as a baseline, then it was really about how can we explore, you know, going to market. And so that's when we leaned on, luckily, we leaned on Richard Boyd, who at that point had PT on the net, and he had a pretty good network. Um, and so, you know, if for those folks that are out there, if, if you're going to choose investment, uh, if you're going to choose business people, uh, if you're going to choose partnerships, if you're going to choose people to come in, think of the short term, medium term and long term and get clear as to what the objectives are on everybody coming in, in the short term, medium and long term. Because if there's any uh, divergence of motivations in the, in the medium and long term, it'll always uh, show up and it'll, the tendency will, will be for, for it to unravel at a certain point in time. And so, you know, lessons learned for us is choose individuals uh, wisely that are, you know, kind of at the table of the business. Right. And uh, a lot of people make mistakes and, you know, a lot of people learn the hard way. And so all those learnings are valuable uh, as long as you've got a long-term goal. So uh, I think that those things are going to be, you know, critically important as steps, because I know that people can come to the table with money and investment and everything else and, and market access, right? They can open up different market segments too. And there's always this sense of urgency. You got to get to market, right? You got to be first to market. I think in my own experience, I'm not as concerned about that anymore, right? When there's always this urgency, like we better, we better get to market right now. What I've seen that for me has usurped that thinking is more, no, let's do it right. Because if we take our time and even go a little bit slower, but do it right, I've always seen that we will have the advantage. I've made the mistake of the former, which is, you know, we got to get there. 
we got to get there first. We got to be, you know, uh, you know, the first, and I, there is wisdom to that. Uh, but if it, if you move in haste because of that, I do believe that folks have typically more time than you think you do. It's like surfing, right? People scramble to get on that wave. And one of the pieces of advice I give surfers when I teach them, I don't know why I'm teaching surfing, but I do. <laughs> I'm not that good. Uh, but one thing I do is I say, don't, don't think about everything. Just think about a, a few you know, key things. And the first one is you got to make sure you're on the way first. So, and then you've got more time than you think you do. And that slows people down. And when people slow down, they make better decisions and typically they're more focused uh, on the process as opposed to more focused on an immediate outcome, which never bears fruit and never comes to be. It's focusing on the process because everything is a process <laughs> like this is too. And it's a continued process. So, you know, those are some of the things that are, I think are important. Well, some, some amazing insights. I'm reminded as, as you were talking about, you know, <clears throat> one of uh, John Wooden's famous quotes of be quick, but don't hurry. You know, like you've, you've, you've got to get to market. If you're, if you throw all that whole thing out the window, then, you know, the wave will cross under you, but, but you'll crash if you're rushing. Yeah. So be quick, but, but don't hurry. Um, some amazing things there. So before we move on to, to one other thing is you mentioned, and, and you did it, you did it very nicely about, you know, there's, there's some mistakes. You got to make sure that you're, you're, you're doing things the right way. There was a stage in, in, in Viper, you talked about redesigning a couple of years ago. And when you sp specifically talked about the, the short, medium and long-term and how it will unravel at some point. Um, and you had a situation within Viper where you experienced like a couple of years of some, some heavy unraveling with partners. Um, can you talk about how you just, how do you deal with when you've got two people that are in bed together and then, you know, one just has a different vision and wants to go a different way. And you know, that can be messy. Like it's like, you know, a messy, a messy marriage breakup or whatever. Um, right. How do you, how do you navigate that kind of environment? where to come out in, in a way that, that um, is successful? Yeah, that, that's a great question. It's a pointed question, but it's, I think it's a good question. And, you know, I think that what I want to do is first is, is, you know, pay respect to the whole process. And it's less about the specifics and more about, Absolutely. you know, I think the generalities. And I think that a good sensing of alignment of, of long, medium and long-term vision, because I would argue that, whoever you are, uh, whatever business you come from, whatever uh, motivations and outcomes you want to see, that's fine. I mean, I, I think that, that, you know, you can't begrudge that. But if there's an inconsistency of alignment, it's always going to, it's always going to present itself. And so, you know, if unfortunately it does, it reminds me of a study that was once done. And I don't know the particulars of the study, but it was a study on what made individuals successful. And this study looked at attributes, personality attributes, qualities of, of, of an individual, uh, constitution of, of character, all of these things. And what they, what they distilled it into was one, one, one attribute was consistent amongst all successful people. And that was grit. And boy, can I attest to that, <laughs> right? It's not social standing. It's not education. I mean, all those things could have influence, but the common denominator was grit. My own personal experience, you can, can align with that because in those moments of, all right, now how do we actually take what was not aligned 
And how do we extract that in a way that allows us to move forward? That is a process as well. And that process involves money. It involves uh, a, a focus on a stressful situation for a long period of time. It involves uncertainty and, all, and from all sides, uncertainty as to whether this is going to resolve, uncertainty of the money situation, uncertainty of you know, how it exists beyond this, uncertainty of all these things. So uncertainty. And it is a grind, right? And so if I was to coach myself back then, I would say, just stick with the process. And luckily I did, but it doesn't, I think we're always fearful at the time because we have all these uncertainties. There's so many unknowns and that creates anxiousness. It creates anxiety. It creates all these things. And so the idea of having grit, the idea of sticking it out, the, the idea of bending without breaking, I don't, I don't know if it can be taught at that time. Like I think that challenge in a, you know, I don't want to digress too much, but challenge as kids are, are growing up, right? Adversity, as long as you can love them through it. Adversity, as long as a tribe can, can surround that individual. That's a good thing, right? It's like, you know, pressure creates a diamond, right? It's the same kind of analogy is that, you know, going in and having no adversity doesn't create grit. And so the challenge of stress, you know, so long as it's the right dose response, creates a, a, a stronger and more robust system. And, you know, I, I was thankful that I had to lean on that a lot. And I had a lot of people around me that, you know, I, you actually, you specifically, I remember having conversations. I mean, that's why you're asking the question to me because you know what yeah. I went. And so having the Fraser Quelches and, you know, the Richard Boyds and the Darren Jacobsons and the Andy Jacksons and all these people that actually helped out uh, were, you know, my 20X, meaning, you know, they were my tribe of, of whoever around me that made me stronger. Uh, because, you know, when I was tired and when I couldn't fight much, they were, they were rallying around me. Right. And so it's really a process of saying, can I bolster my network and can they, can I bring people that want to help me closer to me so that they can help me through this? Uh, Cause nobody's strong enough to do this by themselves. Well, and you know what, Michelle, one of the things you didn't say, and, and so there's two big things I think I heard that I, that I want to highlight um, for anybody listening, which was, you know, having the grit yourself to like having that value, having that ability. And I was, as you were talking, I was reminded of a Winston Churchill quote, which is uh, never, ever, ever, ever give up. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's the kind of grit that you were talking about. And then having the, having the ability to lean on the people around you when you need them, you know, who could, who could help and, and, and making sure you pick the right folks to do that with. But one of the things I'll say about you during that period of time, and, and even just now it was very apparent as you were answering that question, um, is, is you handled that whole situation with tremendous grace and professionalism. And I think that that was, um, that's also a testament and, and, and something to learn from. Like, okay, I never spoke poorly. I never heard of the, of the situation that, that, that you were in. You always, um, always spoke with a lot of integrity and you handled the whole thing with a ton of grace. And a lot of people wouldn't, um, you know, in those, in those types of environments. And I think that's uh, both professionally and personally, probably there's some, some good things to learn from that. So that's, that's more of a, a kudos and shout out just the way that uh, the way that you address those, that challenging situation, I'm sure other challenging situations that have come through your life. So let's shift now. Because, you know, the Viper is going on at the same time, because a lot of people may not understand, but you've been a serial entrepreneur 
for about as long as I've known you, which is, which is, I mean, as I'm thinking about it, an awfully long time. Yeah, just yeah, five, five or so years, five or so. <laughs> Emphasis can be on whatever part of that you want to be. So, so from there, you and some other partners um, started a, a fitness education company called PTA Global. Why PTA Global at that time? Yeah, and the the credit. I think mostly goes to Richard Boyd. So Richard Boyd is a person that I've learned a tremendous amount from, obviously a, a visionary, a dreamer like me, but someone who's been bold and, and brash in, in all the right ways, uh, but then leads from the heart and, and just, you know, is uh, his personality is infectious. So he's got these kind of natural attributes that make him uh, who he is. And um, I, I think that most of the credit goes to him. And so he had this vision of, of, trying to align an educational process where it was client-centered. And what would that mean if we thought about education and, and science and application and, and fitness, starting from what the client is experiencing and coming from their shoes? And so what would that mean in terms of coaching? What would that mean in terms of, you know, what we do with that individual and how we communicate and how we, how we build a construct of education fitness-wise that was client-centered? And so that was the, the dream. And, and so as... Uh, there was five of us that came on uh, to kind of co-found this this company, and so Rod Corn leaned in, Scott Hobson leaned in, uh, Bobby Capuccio leaned in, I leaned in, Richard Boyd leaned in, and so we all leaned in with with you know our backgrounds, and we created something that um, that we're very proud of, and um, and it was really an educational construct that allowed uh, us to talk about the humanity and not just the the science of things, uh, in a way that uh, I, I hope had some influence and had some impact on, uh, on the industry itself. So, you know, that, that's what we did. And, and what, what Richard did further is he said, okay, there are these kind of core co-founders, but you know, we know a lot of good people out there. We know, you know, the Gary Gray's and the Greg Roscoff's and the Tom Purvis's of the world and, and many others that can contribute and have value to contribute. So collectively what he did is he reached out to a broad community and said, can you contribute to this? And, you know, a testament to him that, you know, everybody he asked, all of them said yes, <laughs> right? And so what they did is they had their influence on the educational process so that we had all of these good minds and these good voices and leaders at the table. Uh, and, and, and that kind of created a, a, a network that we could go out and, and just, um, we, we could influence an educational process so that, you know, trainers or potential would-be trainers can see it from the perspective of the, uh, of the customer, of the client. Because for many of us who love to be in the gym, uh, that's a pretty daunting thing if I'm overweight and I'm going in and the perception in my mind's eye is everybody in there is fit and healthy and I'm gonna be the odd person out. Just walking into a facility uh, is an exercise in boldness and courage that we don't ever really think about. And you know what does that mean for the customer or the client who's going to experience that? What does it mean for a customer or client that is in their 50s that are getting some comorbidities and a 25-year-old trainer is talking to them, right? And what is that like in, in the clients? What, what does the trainer value? They may value the aesthetics. They may value the workout of the day, the, you know, the, whatever the trend is at the time. And that may be okay, but it may be not something that is readily accessible for that individual who is in their fifties or sixties. And funny, hey, you got to start. You got you got to shut shut down that fifties thing. Just I'm just saying. <laughs> just watch it. Our seventies or eighties, and they're you know. yeah, exactly. 
but 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 I'll say this. I mean, we're, we're similar ages. Uh, I will tell you this. I mean, my my mindset at forty seven is very different in terms of what I want and what I aspire to when I, than when it was twenty seven. And so, Absolutely. even if my twenty seven year old self was coaching me right now, there would be a disconnect, right? Because what I value right now is different, right? Some things are similar, but I I want to have what I want to have for as long as I can have it now, right? A you know a max strength outcome is not really important to me anymore. No, right. Um, so, you know, it's, it's an, it's an evolution. And so I, I think from that perspective, that's what PTA global really did. So how did the involvement with PTA global sort of transition into, cause you, you struck out with the Institute of motion, which is, which is what you're doing now. And, 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 and your, um, and I am has, has, has been really, as far as I can tell, one of your main, pretty much your main passion. I mean, obviously you're still involved with Viper at a pretty high level as well. Um, so tell me how PTA Global, like the, how did that inform and, and then how did you spring off of that into the Institute of Motion? Yeah, so IOM was really an extension of that where we would do, you know, educational constructs. We would look at solutions and strategies uh, that were more at the start, more fitness facing. And so, you know, one thing that our team has done now is, you know, we often, like I'm a dreamer, so I'm always thinking, and my team makes fun of me all the time. Sarah always says, you yada, yada your way over things, right? And what she means by that is you jump to the end, which is awesome, but, you know, we have to operationalize all this stuff, right? So you can't yada, yada your way to the end. We've got to, you know, didactically execute, which I fundamentally agree. And every team needs really strong executors, by the way. Uh, and that's where she has, you know, her and, and you know, Derek Vandenbrink and Jay and they, they're, they're strong executors. So they're valuable, you know, parts of our team. Yeah. So uh, for us, it was started at fitness and then it evolved into, well, who are we as a company? Because what we started to do very quickly was understand that fitness and health are not the same thing. Right. In fact, if you look at fitness to the extreme, i.e. athletes, they're not healthy by and large. Right. That's a, I mean, that's a pretty broad statement. But in, in many cases, athletes are not healthy. And it's just the amount of dosage uh, of stress, the, the lifestyle, everything. It is not conducive to long term sustainable health. So what we found ourselves looking at was science and research and application that would equally index towards human performance. Right. Fitness and human performance, as well as health. And so we would look at different things along those two measures and we would try to put them on a level scale. So everything we looked at was on this idea of health and human performance. So what IOM is fundamentally is we are an applied health and human performance company. What that means is we're applied. We take the theory and science and we apply it. So that means we create structure, we create solutions and constructs around health and human performance. Now, if you point that at fitness, that means education, that means program building, that means uh, operating systems, that means, you know, kind of uh, educational constructs around health and human performance. So for those that are familiar with our 4Q models, for those that are familiar with our program builder, it really has that logic within it, right? So think about Dolby to the audio system or Microsoft I mean, if I could be so bold, Microsoft to the software, to the hardware, like they infuse an operating system, right? Into a computer. Uh, I am not suggesting we're at that level of, of impact yet. No, not by any shot, but that's our aspiration is to say, can we be an, a default operating logic so that when we think about fitness and health, 
we're thinking about them on equal footing because how many of us have experienced working with folks or it could be ourselves we used to be this but now we can't do it anymore and i get that there's a lot of factors to this some of them outside our control uh, but what we want is we want to have what people want to have for as long as they can have it. As a coach, that's what I would want for you, right? What do you want and how can I get you there or how could you get you there with my, you know, kind of my help um, as long as you want to do it. And that is this idea of resiliency and sustainability in a physiological or kind of or, or motivational sense. And that is really how we've done this. So we've pointed our business at the fitness market. And so what we do is we create solutions for fitness professionals, educationally and otherwise. We've pointed that at healthcare. So as of late, there's a country in Asia that we are partnered with the government to do population prevention health for their entire country. Now that sounds pretty bold and it is, and I'm proud of that. And you know, our, our staff uh, is, is, there and here, but we are working in lockstep with the government to be able to bridge the gap between prevention health and primary health in the healthcare field. And we're building a playbook of prevention health to speak to the medical playbook. So that can influence a person's health span through their lifespan. And that is all to do with health coaching or health and so that's brought us relationships with the uh, with well coaches, ACLM, even some of the policy that's changing in Washington D.C. around uh, healthcare reimbursement codes like CPT three codes and CPT one codes. So we want to be in these discussions so that we can be part of the health conversation, not on the reaction side of, of medical, but on the on the proactive. I'll say the prevention side, which is important for a person's health span. And that's what we've done. We've created constructs in the applied health and human performance vein for health coaching, which is, you know, I hire a health coach that allows me to navigate my health experience. And health coaching is a thing. It's always been a thing. And so we've kind of hitched our carts and we've partnered up with, with really good folks that have done a lot of education for certified and board certified health coaching. And we're, we're creating constructs and models that we can take out to the, the health space. So, you know, for us, that's one of the, from a business perspective, that's one of our biggest growth engines by far, right? If you take Viper and you take everything else that we're doing by far, that's what is the biggest one. And we really see a new world order there. And we, I know we talked about this idea of COVID and reinventing ourselves and future proofing that, you know, I, I have a lot of opinions on that. And, and a lot of it is not about uh, erasing personal training as a, as an ancillary service or as a primary service but it's about including this idea of health coaching. And so as you trickle that in and you're talking about it, but I want to make sure that there's some, that would, you know, people listening are getting like, Oh, how can I, if I'm running my studio, you know, obviously you're looking up IOM to see what kind of inputs you can get from there. But how, like, if you could say just in a, in a general construct, like how do I start to approach my clients differently as I start to be, I start start to view them as fitness isn't necessarily the same thing as health. I want to create something, an environment that's more holistic, so that the people that I'm influencing, the you know whatever my sphere of influence is, can be effective at. And you said it in two things: one, getting the person to where they want to get to, right? So I'm here, I want to get here because that's aspirational. And then the other piece is, what do I need to do along the way? to make sure that I can stay here or continue to improve even 
as you said, you know, you're better now at 47 than you were 20 years ago for as long as you possibly can. Cause that's the thing that the 27 year old trainer might not understand. You know, you start to get, you know, into your forties, into your fifties and beyond. It's like, you know what? My goal is to be able to do this and more than this forever. Like yeah. I want, the kids are going to have to rip the crown from my head. They're not going to get it. You got you to take it. And it's not going to get given to you. Yeah. And, and you're right. And, and at 25 or 27, did I understand that? No, I, I was, you know, I wanted to kind of, you know, go bigger, stronger, faster every day. And, but I think what's shone a light on this is, you know, what does Tom Brady, you know, Serena Williams, Roger Federer, uh, LeBron James, what do they all have in common? I mean, they're at the, what should be the denouement of their career, like this kind of yeah. fall of, of like they're out of there. And they're still relevant. In fact, relevant to the point of like, you know, the top, the top tier of, of their sports. And it's a lot of things. It's, it's special consideration to recovery. It's how do you engineer that? So for us, the idea of being unbreakable is to a certain degree unattainable and yet it's aspirational. So if I want to be unbreakable at 27, that means whatever it means to the 27 year old, but it equally is aspirational to the 47, 67, 87 year old, because unbreakable for me at 87, maybe I just want an independent life outside of the nursing home. That's it. I want to live an independent life. And if, you, if I want to run after something for 10 strides at 87, I can do it. That's aspirational to me. Like to me at 47, I want to be there at 87. I want to be unbreakable knowing that, yes, I'm going to, my physiology is going to go through its, its decline. I get it. But I want to do things according to that. So how I prepare, how I plan my program, what I do is all going to influence that, right? So what we do in our constructs, and we've got a, uh, an educational program that we're going to run next month called an Applied Health and Human Performance Specialist. And it's a level one core. It's three levels, but level one. So what we teach is basically, if you want to be unbreakable, what do you consider, right? So I have to consider stress bouts and recovery bouts. Now, recovery is kind of a new thing. And, and I mean, Dan McDonough did a fabulous job in a, in, a, in a virtual summit that I was involved with him a, a month ago. And he was talking about recovery. He did a brilliant job. And so how do we take all of that good knowledge that Dan shared and how do we program it, right? And, and what do we do? And do I, want to in, do I want to reduce inflammation right after a bout of let's say weight training, because isn't inflammation a good thing for protein synthesis right after that? So maybe I don't want to reduce inflammation just then, right? And so there's these considerations of what do I do when that start to influence not only the stress bouts, but the recovery bouts. Like how do I engineer recovery? How do I run a program of recovery? So that's going to be kind of the key thing. And then how do I look at health and performance, right? So as an example, if high intensity exercise is, you know, the soup du jour today, like it's the flavor of the day for sure in, in fitness, because you look at acidosis and you look at all these growth markers and you look at what happens to our cells, what happens to our performance, what happens to our morphology when we induce this high intensity. And you're right, we get bigger, stronger, faster because of mTOR signaling, because of IGF-1 and all these other hormones that are expressed in that environment. Cool. So then what that does is it breeds sound bites. So, so what we do is we jump into that camp, we lose the perspective of the continuum because biology is all about a continuum. Mm -hmm. And so you hear things like don't do aerobic exercise because it kills your gains. 
Well, that may be true if there's interference within like six to 12 hours, but what of the health narrative? Because if I do do aerobic exercise, then, um, then I increase hemoglobin concentrations, which is good for oxygen. I increase myoglobin concentrations. I start to express PGC1-alpha and AMPK, which is all to do with resynthesis or what we would call this, you know, bioformation of mitochondria. So it increases the formation of mitochondrion in the cell, which is an organelle, which is all to do with the powerhouse of the cell. And the more mitochondria you put in that cell, the longer that cell has an opportunity to live. That's a good deal for longevity. So now what, right? And then the other thing too, is if I do a lot of high intensity uh, exercise, cytokines are released that are immunosuppressing. So, you know, interleukin-6, which is a, a cytokine, which is a signaling molecule, that is immunosuppressing. So now that may be okay if it's one bout and I can recover and then there's super compensation, my immune system bounces back and I'm totally cool. But how many do we know that value high intensity? And that's how they define their entire workouts every time they do that. So now- right. If one bout is okay, is three or four bouts a week, what is that doing to your immune response over time, right? And at what point does health begin to suffer? And so the idea of health and human performance allows us to program or at least consider factors of programming fundamentally differently. And then we become a good advocate for this idea of, I wanna take Michel or, or Fraser's physiology and I wanna understand it in the short, medium and long term. Right? Because the idea of expressing bigger, stronger, faster is always in the uh, cliche of, yeah, I, I was an, an athlete that was top of my heap at 29. Now I'm broken at 40. Well, that didn't work for you. I mean, I know that you were awesome at 27, but now you're broken at 40? Like, well, any sentence that starts with, I was an athlete. <laughs> this is, you need to stop and question at the front end. And, and as a coach... You know, I, that kind of tugs at my heart because it's like, well, if you loved to do something, and I get that there are factors that are just factors that we cannot control. I get it. Right. And they play into it. But if, if you loved to do something and you stopped because, you know, your, your, more, your, your, your infrastructure didn't support that, was there something we could have done to help you? Or is there something we can do now to help you in the medium and long term as well? And that's an empowering thing because you know, you and I've seen it. I mean, you went through right here, right? With your, with your, with your heart. The only thing that we have truly have control over is our, and only thing that we have, we have dominion over is our body. And even at that point, we lose it at some point. I mean, you didn't decide to have a weak vessel in your heart, right? It decided for you. But when you lost that capacity, it affects every aspect of your life. And when you regain that capacity, it affects everything in your life. And I remember you telling me the story, you said to the doc, hey doc, you better have a good day when, you, when, you, you know, when, you're, when you're working on me because I'm gonna test your work, right? And that was- You're not you fixing me for recreational gardening. <laughs> That's right. So it was gonna be different. And I'll always remember that. I'll remember that conversation for the rest of my life. It's like, I will test your work because what you wanna do, Fraser, is you wanna live your life. And not just like, I want to get back to some degree of function. Like I want to live my life. And for that to happen, I need capacity. And for the capacity to happen, I need readiness. And for readiness, my structure has to be ready, right? And so how do we create that readiness in the short, medium, and long term? And that, that's where the health implications come in. 
Well, and also where, where grit meets programming, you know, cause I mean, there's a diversity as we, as we go along, when you talk about, um, you know, the, the, the aneurysm I had in my aorta, um, you know, there's, there's, do you lie down as an individual, right? I mean, you need to be programmed for, but then there's also the psychology of it, which I'm sure there's, you're addressing a bunch in the thing of, you know, do you, do you lie down and be like, well, I guess this is the new me. Or do you say to yourself as a, as an individual, Oh, hell no, this is not the new me. I'm going to have a conversation with a surgeon to begin with. And regardless of what they say, my objective is not just to get some way back, not to get all the way back to get back and better. And whether or not you can, or you can't, that's, that becomes a, that just becomes, as you say, maybe not be achievable, but it's definitely aspirational. And it's in something that, um, you know, you can try and live into as best you can. Yeah. And yeah, I've, I've often said the, um, forget about aging gracefully. Kicking and screaming, man, all the way. I think, I think Pete, I think Pete, <laughs> Pete Twist had a, I think he reposted a, on social media. He had, and I'm going to get it wrong, but it was something to do with effect is you want to die as young as you can, as late as possible. Meaning exactly. you want your physiology to be like rock star as long as you can. And then, you know, as late as possible. Right. Young, as right? late as possible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, which I thought is, is pretty good. Now, you know, sometimes we can't control this, but um, if we're blessed. Do your to best. Be, yeah. yeah. Hey, so tell me about, um, it sounds like you've got some amazing things coming up with, uh, with IOM. I definitely want to um, get to share that. How do people, how do people sign up for that course you're talking about? You said you're releasing it in a month yeah. or. Yeah, so that goes, uh, it's virtual. So obviously in this new world order, but it, it drops uh, August 10th. It is a, a real time process, meaning that it's virtual, but we meet for one hour every week. And then we mentor mm-hmm. you through uh, an eight, uh, a 12 week of level one that dovetails into a level two, but the level one is a 12 week process. Uh, the best way to do it is just go to uh, www.instituteofmotion.com mm-hmm. and check it out. And it's and the credentialing is an AHHPS, an Applied Health and Human Performance Specialist. And we're going to talk about all of these things, right? How to actually think about human performance, right? Which is like fitness and, mm-hmm. and performance, as well as health at the same time. And um, and a lot of interesting conversations come out of it, right? And what flows from that is an understanding like, ah, okay, I understand that health is different than, you know, than, than performance, or it may not necessarily, you know, kind of equate to each other. And what we want to do is we want them to equate to each other. Mm-hmm. So if we're looking at ways of, of programming, if we're looking at physiology, if we're looking at gender specific physiology, like how many of us train everybody as if they're 25 to 45 year old males? Most of the industry. Why? Because that's where all the research is. But right. as soon as we dig into, you know, female physiology, especially during their menstrual years, we know that, you know, the four phases of the menstrual cycle affect greatly what we do, right? Because in certain phases, there's more uh, in, uh, anti-inflammatory um, and natural killer cells that, that express. And that's a great time to recover. I mean, your physiology is set up to over-recover at that time. That's brilliant. I mean, that's an advantage, Right. right. And then when testosterone is high, uh, hit it hard. And that's an advantage. I mean, it'd be like a bodybuilder knowing exactly when testosterone is getting high. Right. And they know it because if they, if they, uh, uh, indulge into these ergogenic aids, right. And they take, you know, mm-hmm. testosterone, right. For steroids. Um, then they know, right. And they can train hard. For sure. You know, there's a natural cycle of, of, of female physiology that they'll know. And that's a pretty cool thing when, when we really start to dig into it what we are dealing with, with, I will say underrepresented 
segments of our population, the transgender community, how do we train them, right? The females, males, different stages of their lives. So, you know, that's an extension of, but it, it, it brings about a, a, a stark a kind of understanding that we need to know what we're dealing with in order to program for health and human performance. There's a lot there, my friend. There's a lot there. I think that, um, yeah, the certification sounds, sounds absolutely amazing. And, and just so it now, if they miss, people miss the, uh, people miss this first round of it, I presume you're going to do it another way continuously. Yeah, there, there's yeah. going to be another wave, yeah. All right. So, hey, before we wrap up, because we're about out of time, I've got, uh, I've got five, five and five sequence. I got five questions for you. Right off, right off the cuff. Fire, five sequence? <laughs> you know, as rapid fire as you want to make them. It's <laughs> up to you. So the, the first one is right now for you, Shul Delcourt, what are you most excited about or focused on in your own training? Uh, oh, good question. Um, so we've got a program builder and what, what we're doing right now is I'm actually super uh, – I'm super hopped up about structure recovery that I'm super jazzed up about that because, um, as, as I continue to train, I'd still do, you know, load based training and I do, you know, movement based training, but every, every second day I'll do kind of, I'll say bulletproofing exercises for lack of a better description. And I'm super jazzed up about that. Right. So there are certain techniques, even by Canadian, you know, like, uh, the, the FRC stuff, uh, by Spina, Brilliant stuff, you know, Eldoa techniques, some of the band distraction, even Kelly Strad has some really cool stuff. I mean, I'm super jazzed about how, what that means to bulletproof the body. And there are some wonderfully good thinkers out there that have done it. And, and our, you know, our team is kind of aggregating this into our program building and they're actually writing me programs out. And so that's been, you know, wonderfully kind of cool to go through. So I'm, I'm pretty jazzed up about that right now. Who are you currently inspired by? Well, I mean, there's this, there's the kind of the, <laughs> the light and fluffy answer, which is, you know, like my daughter, uh, which is absolutely true. Absolutely right? true. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, I think on a, on a broad, I think on a broad level, um, you know, I, I know that you went through your surgery, like my, my brother last summer had cancer. Right. And so he, um, that was, he's always been kind of the stronger than nails guy. Right. He was, a uh, the, he was the, the, he actually won the Calgary strongman and like he was a yeah. strongman, bigger, bigger, bigger mountain man. And he still is. Yeah. Uh, but what that does, it's sobering when you kind of realize, whoa, at, at, what is he, what was he, he was 48 at the time. And all of a sudden he's, you know, he's got a, a mast or a tumor cell rather in his colon the size of a, what they say, a, a large orange. So, you know, they had to go through that process, but what's inspiring about Jay is that he's, I mean, that guy is, he's, he's built from a different cloth, that guy. But, uh, you know, he went through it uh, with, with grace. You, you mentioned the word grace before. He went through it with grace, uh, with strength, and, um, you know, with a belief structure that, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be able to be okay here. And, and, you know, thankfully he is, and God willing, he still will be. But, uh, you know, he approached that with as much courage as you could possibly imagine. So you look at that, and then it reminds me of the humanity of everything, right? And I think it makes me a, a probably a, a softer, more understanding, empathetic individual um, by virtue of going through that and just understanding the struggles. I mean, you talked about my business struggles, right? And it's like, yeah, and, it, and it, listen, I'm not going to, you know, sugarcoat it. It was tough for me uh, at a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. And then you see, you know, the young family trying to struggle with their kid who's, you know, had, is dealing with cancer. And you're like, 
my troubles like are huge to me until you reference that. And it's like, I have uptown problems, right? That's an uptown problem. I mean, it's a problem, but it's an uptown problem. And it's like the old sure. adage, if you threw your, 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 your uh, troubles into a pile with the world's troubles, you'd probably take your troubles back, right? And in that analogy and that experience to this point in my life, that's certainly been the case. And so my, my brother's been a, I mean, I bet I've had a lot of, you know, people that have taught me a lot, but as of late, you know, Jay's taught me a lot about how to carry yourself through adversity. Awesome. Um, so you got the whole day to yourself. Do anything you want to do. What do you go do? Uh, well, right now I would, I would stay in Solana beach and I would, I would go out in the water. I, I uh, don't get into the surf enough. Mm -hmm. uh, so I would, it would involve surfing. It would involve a nap for sure. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I mean, those two things for sure would be involved in, in the day. Yeah. Awesome. If it was just myself and I wasn't with anybody else. Yeah. A nap for sure. And, and surfing and, and not in that particular order, maybe, but. And so I got, I got one more. So you've talked about, and you've done an amazing amount, right? But you're a young guy. Is this your life's work? What's next? Uh, no. Uh, so yeah, what I, I, what I see next steps is, you know, as we're leaning into this idea of health uh, and particularly healthcare, uh, our team has been lights out phrase, as you know. And what, I, what I've done is I've worked with our team to kind of push, like what I, I really want to do is make an impact into the broader healthcare space. And so, you know, not leaving fitness uh, at all, but extending that idea of coaching and, and uh, the idea of prevention health into the landscape of more uh, of, of healthcare in general. So some of the constructs, some of the operating systems, some of the technology and even the AI that we're writing in terms of where well, I'm not writing the code, but we're working with different companies that are aligning with us because they're technology delivery uh, uh, agencies. And so we're talking about health currencies and cryptocurrencies. We're talking about AI and, and machine learning and decisions in order to navigate a person's health experience. And so, you know, that I'm on the front lines of those conversations. And that to me is... I think an extension of what we're doing right now. And so, you know, hopefully God willing, you know, stay tuned. We're, we're pushing with full gusto and, and, you know, huge ambition towards that. Uh, that's, I think that's next steps for me, Fraze. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the TRX Procast. As a thank you, we'd like to offer you 30 days of free access to the TRX Training Club, which features hundreds of amazing workouts with some of the best trainers in the world. Get your access by the link in the episode description below.